When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. You ready? My partner, Mike, asked me. I exhale sharply and nod. Ready, I answer, even though I'm quite certain I'm not. Mike steps gingerly onto the steep face of the aptly named ribbon, the rope trailing behind him. Disturbed by Mike's skis, the frozen snow shatters into pieces which roll down the steep face, pick up speed, and then skip over the cliff just 20 feet to our left. I count the seconds in my head until I hear it. Those same ice chunks shattering on the rocks some 600 feet below. It is May 2nd, 2019. We're about to spend the next four hours attempting to not fall off that cliff. If everything goes right, I will finally be done with the project more than two years in the making. But if something goes wrong, well, then we'll share the same fate as those chunks of ice. I remind myself the reason I'm standing on this menacing ledge, scared out of my wits. I set a goal in December of 2016 to ski all 90 lines in Andrew McLean's iconic ski guidebook, The Shooting Gallery, a guide to steep skiing in the Wasatch. Published in 1998, The Shooting Gallery was the first guidebook to ignore the powder-seeking skier and focus solely on the world of steep, high-consequence slopes. In 2016, Completing every route in his book was nothing new. Both McLean, Noah Howell, and Caroline Gleick had already accomplished that. But it had taken them all multiple years to finish. I aimed to do it faster. I went on a tear the first two winters of my project. Despite squeezing in my long ski tours between work and family, I managed to complete 87 of the 90 lines by the end of 2018. I entered the winter of 2019 with only three lines remaining. Snow came in copious amounts that season, and I promptly ticked off two. Only one remained, 
the ribbon. Not all descents in the shooting gallery are created equal. Many of them are glorious descents between rock walls filled with powder. Others beg the question, is this even skiable? Of all the lines in the latter category, the ribbon reigns supreme. Just wide enough to collect snow, the ribbon is a small ledge cutting horizontally across the 600-foot vertical walls of Devil's Castle Buttress in Utah's Wasatch Range. The ribbon has just enough downward slope that you can skirt across it on skis as the looming cliff to your left haunts your every move. Tackling the ribbon requires being on belay along its entire six pitches while placing protection in a crumbling rock. Skis on. Only at the end does the cliff give way to a plump snow apron where you can descend safely. If you can imagine rock climbing combined with skiing, you're basically there. As Mike finishes the first pitch and hollers at me to follow, I tell myself that the end of my goal lies a mere 800 feet away at the end of the ribbon. I just need to get there. The rope pulls taut against my harness and I take my first step. But as I inch my way along the ledge, not daring to glance down the cliff, the dread begins to seep in. Because there's more to this day than the culmination of my goal. 14 years ago on this very day, my life turned upside down. It took a moment for the main headline on the CNN website to register. Pentagon loses contact with two F-18s in Iraq. It was May 2nd, 2005, and I was in my dorm taking a break from studying. As I read it again, a wave of fear and doubt washed over me. My oldest brother, Kelly, a Marine pilot, was assigned to an F-18 squadron deployed in the Persian Gulf. There were hundreds of F-18s deployed there for the Iraq war. It could have been anyone but I couldn't shake the feeling that it was, in fact, my brother. After an hour of pacing my dorm room, telling myself not to assume the worst, my cell phone rang. It was my other brother, Kurt. Have you seen anything? He asked cryptically, and I immediately knew why he was calling. All my doubts congealed into fact. I told him about the headline. He cleared his throat. It was Kelly's plane, he told me. Kelly is missing. Back on the ribbon, we hug the upper rock wall, placing protection as we go and staying as far from the cliff as possible. But the cliff is not our only problem. Like any good climbing route, this one has a crux. Halfway across the ribbon, a large limestone block extends out to the very edge of the cliff, neatly cutting the route in two. From our beta, we know there are two ways to deal with the crux. One, going up and over it, which means scrambling on steep, bare rock and ski boots. Not ideal. Or two, creeping down to where the block meets the cliff, where an even smaller ledge, barely eight inches wide, allows passage to the other side. We opt for option two. I strap my skis to my backpack as Mike boots down to the ledge, then disappears behind it. Soon enough, 
The rope goes taut. It's my turn. I boot down backwards. The pitch is steep enough that my nose nearly touches the snow on the upper slope. Then the eight-inch ledge comes into view, and before I can even think about what a dumb thing I'm doing, I step onto it. The ledge is so narrow that my heels hang over the edge. My instincts scream at me to cling to the block, but my ski tips keep catching on the rock above me, forcing me to lean back. My breath comes out ragged. I struggle to pull out a piece of pro. I know the next piece of gear is far on the other side of the block. A slip here would result in a long fall followed by a terrifying pendulum swing along the cliff face. Best case scenario, I'd end up dangling freely from the rope with no way to climb back up. Worst case, I face plant into the cliff with deadly force. I force myself to look down. This ledge is the only thing between me and oblivion. But despite my fear, I'm still alive and still moving. And before I know it, I'm on the other side of the crux, clamoring back up to Mike and the safety of the upper rock wall. The dread, for the moment, abates. I flew out that night to San Diego with the rest of my family, including Kelly's wife and his baby girl, waited for any news. We all did our best to put on brave faces, but deep down, none of us could fathom how this was happening to us again. Just a year earlier, on Memorial Day weekend, I had watched helplessly from the airshow bleachers as my father's vintage World War II plane plunged from the sky. I was the first to arrive at the crash site, where I found my father still strapped to the fuselage. His eyes glazed over. They rushed him to the hospital. He did not last the night. Over the following year, Kelly took the lead in guiding our family past our grief. He checked in on my siblings and I regularly to see how we were doing. He rallied all of us when our mother needed support. His constant optimism reminded us that there was more than enough light past the darkness. Our father left some giant shoes behind, but Kelly filled them admirably. And then we found ourselves wondering if we had lost him as well. We waited for word as the military conducted their search some 6,000 miles away. Two days later, the two Marines who arrived at the front door dressed in full uniform confirmed our worst fears. Ever since losing my dad and Kelly, I've felt this inescapable sense of dread when the month of May approaches. I sense, beyond all logic, that something terrible is bound to happen. On the surface, I'm well aware that these feelings are ludicrous. Hurt, death, and loss can strike at any time. We push those thoughts deep down because to live with that knowledge constantly would be unbearable. But we are nothing if not products of our experiences. And my experiences have taught me that May is a month to fear, to dread, 
I never planned to attempt the most dangerous line in the shooting gallery on that day of all days. I had tried it earlier in the year, simply to avoid doing it in May, but got turned around due to conditions. But by the end of April, it was my only line remaining, and my window was closing. Once my partner and I had compared schedules, contemplated weather forecasts, and scoured avalanche conditions, we finally dialed in a date, May 2nd. As it dawned on me that I would be attempting the line on such a traumatic day, the old familiar dread crept in from all sides. In my mind, something was destined to go wrong. A piece of pro giving way, a slip in the wrong place. My imagination cycled through all the myriad scenarios involving my death. It was a silly line anyways, I told myself. Not even real scheme. Why should it count? But as the sun rose on May 2nd, I knew I could never live with coming so close to my goal, only to turn around. So I gathered my gear and headed out. The dread was there, strong and palpable. I just hoped my will was stronger. As we round the last corner, the snow apron comes into sight. Just 100 more feet until the exposure eases into skiable terrain. But as we make our way onto the last pitch, one final obstacle meets our gaze. The final pitch of the ribbon faces the morning sun, which softens the ice and snow. But as the sun moves west, the upper rock wall drapes the last pitch in shadow. The heat dissipates, the cold seeps in, and the wet snow freezes solid again. Now, the snow is one uniform sheet of ice. The rock quality is poor for protection. And as I step out on the last pitch, the dread blooms inside me again. What if I lose my feet and fall? What if our anchor blows out? What if I die up on this silly line, all for a silly goal? Then, I try something new. Instead of pushing it away, I acknowledge the dread. I allow it to grow larger and larger inside me until it threatens to overwhelm me. My chest tightens. I feel like I can't breathe. And then I embrace the dread and everything goes calm. My ski edges bite solidly into the ice. My legs feel strong and steady below me. In a flash, I remember everything it took to reach this moment. The months of training, the pre-dawn starts, the constant exposure to avalanches and cold and every other danger lurking in the mountains. And it's then that I realize it's not despite the dread that I'm able to move confidently across this thin line. It's because of it. I skirt under a large rock and sidestep back up around it. The cliff isn't gone, but the fear no longer impedes my focus. Instead, it sharpens it. And then, I'm through. The cliff gives way to snow, and the danger passes. 
We gather our rope and gear and peer down a clear snow ramp onto the apron. The ice turns to powder and we let our skis loose. With each turn, I feel the heavy burden of my goal flaking away. For a moment, I allow myself to think that my dad and Kelly would be proud of me for finishing my goal. But that's not right. The goal is arbitrary. What matters is what it took to arrive there. More than anything, they would be proud that I faced my fears. And for this one day in May, I suddenly don't feel an impending sense of dread. I don't know how long it will last, but I'm going to enjoy it for today. My name is Luke Hines, and this is my short. Thank you, Luke, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Kai Engel and Brendan O'Connell. Tracks are courtesy of the artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. And you can find the links to all the artists at our website, directdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and edited by Becca Cahal. Artwork by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fizz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.